0: Hi, James here. As you may have gathered, I am pretty crappy at self-promotion. Maybe it's me being just a little bit hyper-British, but I just find asking you dear listeners to do things to help me with the show just a little... I don't even know. However, if you'd like to help me out, then the best thing to do is to leave a review on iTunes, which will help bring in new listeners. You can also like the Facebook page, The Queens of England Podcast, where I promote each of the new shows, as well as posting various reviews and behind-the-scenes stuff. I also have a website, queensofenglandpodcast.com, where you can find all the show notes, as well as some other cool stuff. Finally, if you're feeling super generous, on my website you can find the donate button, because web hosting, media hosting, and academic library cards don't come free. Of course, feel free to do none of these things at all. The show will still be here for you. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 23, Joanna of Navarre, the Breton Duchess. So far in this series, I've had to do some pretty serious digging to get information on some of the queens. Very few of them have full-length biographies, and some don't even have any articles or chapters devoted to them in any book. Now, for most of them, it's because their lives are not that remarkable, but for others, I find myself just begging for more information. Joanna of Navarre, also sometimes called Joanne or Joan of Navarre, is one of them. She does have things written about her, a decent-length academic article and a whole chapter in an excellent collection of essays, but she is crying out for a decent full-length biography. She isn't even a character in Shakespeare's two-part historical treatment of the reign of Henry IV, In his book, Crown, Household and Parliament in 15th Century England, A. R. Myers sums up the traditional view of Joanna thusly In the long lines of the Queens of England, Joan of Navarre is, in most respects, not of outstanding note. He then goes on to talk about the one thing that is of note about her, but more on that later. I do not agree with A. R. Myers. Joanna of Navarre is a woman worth studying in depth. So, I'm dividing this series on Joanna into two parts. This first one, dealing with her life before and during her time as Queen of England, and the next one, will be on her life afterwards, which was rather tumultuous. England and France had been at loggerheads for most of the 14th century. This meant that all of the duchies and counties surrounding France that were semi-independent of the French crown had to pick sides, and the stakes were high. Choose the wrong side, and you could find yourself deposed or even murdered. In the coming episodes, we'll be talking a lot about them, But we're going to start today by talking about two in particular, Navarre and Brittany. Why? Well, because these were the first two homes of Joanna. She was born to very noble stock. Richard II's two queens were the daughters of the two noblest kingdoms in Europe, but Joanna could top her predecessor in terms of lineage. Her father was Charles II of Navarre, that small kingdom on the Bay of Biscay between modern France and Spain, and her mother was the daughter of a king of France. The Crown of Navarre had been part of a personal union with that of France until the French Crown had passed the House of Valois a few decades before, and the Navarrese Crown had passed to the Count of Hevreux. That said, the Navarrese were still very pro-French. Charles II's mother was the daughter of a French king, and his wife was also the daughter of a different French king. That notwithstanding, Charles II, who is also known as Charles the Bad, had a very confusing foreign policy towards France. He held extensive lands in Normandy, one of the key battlegrounds in the Hundred Years' War, and sided with the English on several occasions. His life is truly fascinating and worthy of an episode in of itself. In brief, he had the Constable of France, the Chief French General, murdered over a territory dispute, switched sides over to England when the Black Prince invaded, opened all the jails in Paris to create anarchy when it became clear that England and France were making a peace without him, launched a failed coup against the French king, got sent to prison for all of this, got sprung from prison by an ally, and tried to kick France while they were down after the defeat at Poitiers, massacred a load of rebels called the Jacquerie, which lost him all of his support, tried to become Duke of Burgundy, lost all of his lands in Normandy, faked his own capture during a Spanish war because he couldn't be bothered to fight, lost all the rest of his French lands, and was eventually sent up in a sack and burned alive in his own palace. And yes, that is the short version. Mike Duncan, of history of Roman revolutions fame, likes to call Talleyrand one of the most duplicitous men ever to have lived. And, well, Charles the Bad of Navarre is right up there with him, just without the you know, survival skills. So, as you can see from that whirlwind introduction, Navarre was right in the thick of the conflict between England and France during the reign of Edward III, and had significant skin in the fight, thanks to its close links with the French royal house and its lands in Normandy. Joanna was born somewhere between 1368 and 70 in Normandy to Charles and his wife Joan of France, making her, like I said earlier, the daughter of crowns on both sides of the family. Her early life was turbulent, as you might imagine. Her mother died in 1373, and Joanna was therefore left under the sole protection of her, shall we say, colourful father? Her birth coincides with the final defeat and humiliation of Charles by France, and when she was young, she and her two young brothers were held as hostages by the regents of France to ensure that Charles was a good boy and didn't betray them again. This was the gildiest of gilded cages. In fact, it wasn't even a cage at all, really. She was treated extremely well, even considering that Charles was not a good boy at all, and tried to poison the regents, who would have been in their rights to punish his children for their father's intransigence. Eventually, she was released, and was almost immediately married off to John IV, Duke of Brittany, in 1386. If you've been really paying attention, you may remember John of Brittany. He grew up in the English court during the reign of Edward III, and was a personal favourite of Philippa of Hainault, and ended up marrying one of her daughters, but she died only three months into the marriage at the age of 16. She was his first wife, and his second wife, Joan Holland, a future stepdaughter to the Black Prince, survived longer, but neither of his first two wives produced any children. In the reign of John IV, Brittany had also been in the thick of the Hundred Years' War. He had essentially been an English puppet during the early years of his reign, but eventually declared for the French king, who, rather ungratefully, tried to annex the duchy, leading to another conflict, and eventually, by the time we get to the mid-1380s, he was declared to neither side in particular, not wanting to get his fingers burned. England and France were at peace-ish at this stage, this being during the reign of Richard II over in England, and John wanted a high-status bride as well as heirs, as he currently had neither after the death of his second wife. Joanna was perfect for him, as she was neither English nor too French, thus keeping the French crown sweet without provoking another confrontation with England. Despite his reputation as a duplicitous murderer, failed attempted murderer, and purveyor of ruinous wars, Charles was still a rich man, and managed to provide a substantial dowry of a hundred and twenty thousand livres, with an annual pension of six thousand for Joanna. He wasn't doing this just out of the goodness of his heart, though. In return, he demanded that a third of all of the Duke's assets be handed over to Joanna as her dower, making her a very rich woman and a powerful player in the duchy. The negotiations for this marriage had to be undertaken in secret, as the political implications of the marriage would have had a significant impact on the balance of power in this battleground between England and France, and messengers between each court had to travel in disguise to avoid attracting suspicion. The couple were married in 1386 at Bayonne Cathedral in Navarre, and the couple then travelled by sea to Brittany to start their new lives together. The marriage was immediately successful, with nine children being born in the space of just 12 years. Of them, seven made it out of childhood, the most notable being their firstborn son, who was helpfully named John after his father, and I guess mother too in a sense, because as I said a thousand times, medieval parents had no imagination. In 1399, after 13 years of marriage, Duke John died, leaving Joanna in charge. Their son, the new Duke John, was only 10 at the time, and so his mother was to act as regent for him until he came of age. Up until that point, Joanna had not exerted much political power in the duchy at all, as she had spent almost all of her time as duchess being pregnant and giving birth, hardly enough time to build up a power base. There are stories of her saving various Bretons from her husband's legendary wrath, without doing the classic queenly-slash- duchessly thing of prostrating herself at her husband's feet to intercede on behalf of one of John's rivals, but more on that later. Now though, her time had come to exercise real power, and by all accounts she did so very competently for two years. She was a very well-connected woman, being the sister of the then the King of Navarre, and having deep familial roots in the French and to an extent English royal houses. The terms of her dowry and her husband's will made her an extremely wealthy woman, making her authority in Brittany unquestioned. Her nobles may not have been particularly thrilled about being ruled over by a woman, but there was no questioning the power that her wealth gave her. Her main concern in these two years, that she ruled Brittany in the name of her young son, was mediation. There was a lot of testosterone flying about at this time, and France had her eyes on Brittany, and so she made it her task to pacify one Oliver Clisson, one of her husband's rivals and the constable of France, managing to do so in a fairly stunning feat of diplomacy. She recognised that the main power that monarchy has is pageantry. Visual symbolism was a classic way to project power, and this is evident in the lavish funeral that she threw for her husband in March 1400, and the equally magnificent coronation of her son John at Rennes the following year. She was no Isabella of France. She had no desire to wield power for herself. Everything she did was to bequeath her son, the Crown Duke of Brittany, a stable inheritance once he came of age. She also had a backbone of steel, sending up to the Bishop of Quimper when he threatened her with excommunication over a policy he didn't like, and dismissed officials and military men who crossed her. She was no mere figurehead. She was in charge whether people liked it or not. Her son's coronation in 1401 meant that the reins of power passed officially to John, but she was still a figure of tremendous influence in Brittany and still acted as his guardian. After this transfer of power, though, it was clear that she was moving to a new stage of her life. She was now in her mid-twenties, and the big question on everyone's lips was whether she would remarry, and if she did, to whom? Joanna kept her cards very close to her chest on this, but it seems that in 1402, negotiations were opened for her to marry the new English king, Henry IV. Now, this match is a little unlike the last few ones, in that the motives were not purely political. When I wrote this, I had a look back at the list of episodes for the last few months, and it's a good little while since a king and queen agreed to marry off their own agency, rather than at least one of them having it thrust upon them by their parents. They were also both of similar ages, Henry being three years older, but neither of them were teenagers or even pre-teenagers, which also makes a nice change. Joanna and Henry were known to each other for a few years before their marriage, but when their first meeting was is a matter of some debate. It is possible that they may have met as early as 1394, when she and her husband went on a state visit to the court of Richard II before Henry's exile. They also may have met in 1399, before Henry went off to win the throne of England from Richard, and it has been suggested that this is where the mutual attraction may have been kindled. The fact is, though, that Joanna would not have been particularly high on the marriage wish list of the great and powerful men of Europe. She had money, yes, and was proven to be able to have children, but marrying her would bring no great diplomatic benefit that had already been exhausted on her first marriage. Also, as I will discuss in a moment, childbearing was not high on the requirement list for her in her marriage to Henry. This lack of benefit has led to son, both at the time and since, to dismiss Henry's choice of Joanna as a bit of a blunder. He was a usurper with no more right to the crown than many other well-connected nobles, and so a marriage to a powerful foreign princess would perhaps have been a better choice. But it seems that he and Joanna may have been a love match from the start, making them highly unusual. It's the simplest explanation for Henry choosing a bride against his own political interest. Evidence we have for this comes from their own correspondence. In 1400, Joanna wrote a letter to Henry, and you can tell from some of the language in this letter that she was using more than just the usual flattery in her writing. Indeed, it's almost flirty, Quote, Since I am desirous to hear of your good estate, which may our Lord grant that it may ever be as good as your noble heart desires, and as I, for my part, could wish it for myself, if it would please you to let me know of it with certainty, you would give me great rejoicings in my heart, for every time that I hear good news of you, it rejoices my heart most greatly, and if of your courtesy you would hear the same from over here, Thanks to you, at the time of writing these presents, I and my children were together in the good health of our persons, thanks to God who grant you the same. If anything that I can do over here will give you pleasure, I pray you to let me know it, and I will accomplish it with a very good heart, according to my power. The first moves towards marriage were made when Henry, in 1401, gave one of Joanna's ambassadors an expensive jewel as a present to bring back to her in Brittany one imagines as a token of his affection and maybe a form of medieval engagement ring. In March the following year, she instructed her people to talk to Henry's people about a marriage. The journey to the altar was not without its obstacles. I've already discussed the fact that she was not an ideal match for embattled king. They were also, as by now in medieval Europe was practically routine, within the band degrees of kinship, as they were within the third and fourth degrees of consanguinity. Then again, by the stands of the time, being that far apart in the Jean pool is practically miraculous. This required a dispensation from the Pope, which, given the necessary secrecy behind the negotiations for the marriage, was not easy to obtain. What made it harder is that England and Brittany recognised different popes at the time, which required the two rival pontiffs to come together in a rare agreement. The main objection to the marriage, though, came from the Breton nobility. Her son John may well now have been crowned as Duke, but he was still practically a boy, and so the issue of his guardianship was disputed. They were not keen on having the King of England as some overbearing stepfather, essentially conquering the duchy via proxy. Therefore, as a condition of the marriage, Joanna was forced to give up the guardianship of her son to Philip, the Duke of Burgundy, a very powerful player in French politics, and one of the men who controlled the kingdom while its King Charles VI battled with his mental illness. She also had to leave all four of her sons behind in Brittany under the custody of Philip, only being permitted to bring her two young daughters, Margaret and Blanche, with her. It must have been a gut-wrenching decision for her, but in 1402 she gave her assent to the marriage to Henry, essentially a about- There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. abandoning her sons to the machinations of Breton politics. So, who was the man that she was marrying? I talked a bit about Henry the Fourth last time, but I think it's worth giving him a greater introduction. Henry was the only son of John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster, one of the richest men and greatest soldiers in England during the reigns of Edward III and Richard II. He narrowly escaped getting lynched during the Peasants' Revolt, and was a childhood companion of Richard II. In July 1380, at the age of 14, Henry's father arranged a marriage with Mary of Bohun for him, one of the heirs to the estate of the Earl of Hereford. She was a little younger than him, so it wasn't until 1386 that their first child was born, Henry, who would later become Henry V. Of course, it's worth noting at this point that neither father nor son were expected to gain the throne. They were high up in the kingdom, yes, but Richard II was still expected to father children and had already named a different successor should he not produce one. Together, Henry and Mary had five further children, all of whom made it out of childhood, which again makes a nice change. They were, in order of age, Thomas, John, Humphrey, Blanche again, and Philippa. Sadly though, while giving birth to Philippa in 1394, Mary died. By all accounts, Henry and Mary had a fairly happy marriage, with them more than one occasion to find their parents to spend amorous time together. Henry threw his wife a lavish funeral and wore black for a whole year as a sign of respect, another sign that he had true affection for Mary. Of course, at this point, things were all about to go to hell in England. Mary died only a few weeks after the death of Anne of Bohemia, and as you'll recall, it was just after that that Richard started his slip into despotism and paranoia. Henry got caught up in all that, and despite his opposition to the king's growing tyranny and sympathy with the lord's appellant, stayed loyal to the king until Richard exiled him after the farcical duel he made in fight against the Duke of Norfolk, as well as disinheriting him, cutting him off from his father's enormous landholdings. Furious, Henry organised a coalition of disaffected nobles, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Arundel, and seized the throne from Richard II after a swift invasion in 1399. He executed many of Richard's key advisers, and the king himself was also disposed of in rather murky circumstances. Henry's early reign, in fact really his entire reign, was spent attempting to secure his throne and fighting off rebellions, the most notable of which being the one that involved the former queen, Isabella France, that we talked about last time. So, that catches up the stories of Henry and Joanna. When we left off with her, she had just agreed to marry Henry in 1402. In April of that year, they were married by proxy at Elton Palace, with Henry placing a ring on the finger of one of Joanna's ambassadors, apparently saying the first recorded wedding vow recorded of a king, thereto I plight thee my troth, a vow still used in the Anglican communion. While they were now married, they still were not together as man and wife, as they were still waiting for the pope and anti-pope to sort out their consanguinity issues, as well as for the anti-pope, the one that Brittany recognized, to give permission for her to marry a husband who recognised his rival. When finally all that was done and she had said goodbye to her sons, who she was forced to leave behind, she was ready to sail to England. On New Year's Day, 1403, Henry's fleet arrived in Brittany, but anyone who knows the English Channel knows that crossing it in winter is a historically bad idea, and so by the time that she had reached England two weeks later, she had been through a series of storms and only barely made it there alive. Henry immediately rushed to greet her at Exeter and together they travelled to Winchester where their marriage vows were solemnised, a rare non-Westminster Abbey marriage. On their marriage, Jonah was given a personal dowry of around £6,600, which was a lot. Traditionally, queenly dowries were around the £4,500 mark and given the financial distress that the kingdom was in, this was seen as a needlessly profligate gift made by a king who was perhaps thinking with his heart rather than his head. This was not aided by the fact that quickly became clear that any hope that Henry marrying a former Breton duchess would lead to flipping Brittany away from France and towards England were extinguished. Now, if you'll forgive me, I'm going to go a little bit into the numbers on this. The way that this dowry worked is that this money was owed to Joanna from the exchequer until such a time as she could be granted sufficient lands for the rent to cover the amount. The problem is that the land was not immediately available, and even with what was available, the Treasury could not afford to pay the deficit. Eventually, even after being granted much of the traditional Queenly Dower, this had to be supplemented with lands held by the Duchy of Lancaster, Henry's own title, which were released when his stepmother, Catherine Swinford, died. These lands, all told, were spread around the country and included castles and rural estates, including Bristol and Nottingham castles. The size of this dowry and the costs of running the Queen's household made Joanna very unpopular in the early years of her reign. In his book, Between France and England, Paul Strond describes the impact of this huge dower thusly. Quote, As an investment, Henry IV's tie with Joanna of Navarre must be rated somewhere between bad and catastrophic, absorbing nearly 10% of royal revenues over a period of some 30 hard-pressed years. If I was to compare Joanna to some of the queens that we've had so far, I would say that she's a mix of Eleanor of Provence, the spendthrift Savoyard, and Eleanor of Castile, the Stony Cross property magnate. Like Eleanor of Castile, she spent a lot of her time concerned with her property portfolio. The size of her dower, along with rents from properties that she still owned in Brittany, meant that she was financially independent from her husband, a very rare thing in the Middle Ages. Unlike Eleanor, though, a lot of that financial independence came from the vast amount of money and land bequeathed to her from royal estates and the public purse. Given the fact that the English were given to believe that their new queen was supposed to be a woman of considerable personal wealth, the fact that they were having to make sacrifices in order to give her yet more money did not look great. Eleanor of Castile's miserliness and the aggressive pursuit of her rents was to an extent forgiven as a product of necessity on her part. This was not the case with Joanna. She may have been a rich woman upon her marriage, but she was a huge financial burden on an English treasury that could barely support itself to begin with. Along with this, she also brought over an extensive retinue of Breton attendants and advisers, and started to attract similar criticisms to those made of Eleanor of Provence. Remember her? She was the one that brought along half of Savoy with her, and these Savoyards were accused of being a shadow government controlling the supposedly weak Henry III. Bretons were not enormously popular in England at this time. They were seen as being French allies at a time when anti-French feeling was at a high, and as anti-English pirates. Isabel, the previous queen, had gotten away with being French because of her age, but Joanna did not have that on her side. She was also seen as being aggressively Breton rather than an Englishwoman, exemplified by her large foreign household and support of Breton causes. In 1405, a group of Breton sailors were captured after having launched a raid on the Devon coast looking for English plunder. Joanna not only persuaded her husband Henry to give her custody of these sailors, she then released them back to Brittany without claiming a ransom. The year before, she released a seventy-six thousand livres worth of rights and rents to her son John, a huge transfer of wealth from mother to son, securing the young duke who was establishing himself his new post, This was deeply unpopular, and mutterings in Parliament led to Joanna being forced to reduce her retinue. In three parliaments between 1404 to six, they heard petitions that required that, quote, all French persons, Bretons, Lombards, Italians, be removed out of the palace. And there were frequent speeches calling for the removal of all the, quote, aliens in her household. Eventually, a compromise was struck, whereby 43 members of her retinue were expelled from the kingdom, but she was allowed to keep her two daughters along with 13 others. Although this all did greatly affect her reputation as a queen, it did not entirely define her. It seems that she was kept away from most of the high politics of the kingdom, and given how vicious it was at this time, that was probably no bad thing for her. She did, though, maintain her reputation of being an intercessor, still a key part of queenship. The only lengthy description in the sources that we have of her engaging in this act, though, comes from her time as Duchess of Brittany rather than as Queen, which I alluded to earlier in the show. We need to go back in time to the 1390s, and the old Duke of Brittany had made the frankly very bold move of arresting and threatening some French ambassadors to court. Her response to this was written about in the Chronicle of Saint-Denis. Quote, "...in the interest of peace and concord, this estimable duchess promised to serve as go-between, and promptly setting aside her womanly modesty, although on the brink of giving birth, taking her children in her arms with only one attendant, you can really sense how he is raising the stakes here, wholly unexpected in the gathering night, and neglected accepting practices, entered the chamber of the duke. As I learn from a reliable report, throwing herself at the feet of the Duke upon bended knees and inciting the Duke with grievous sobs to pity her and her children, she boldly exposes his duplicity, openly declares the names of his co-conspirators, and, the wickedness deepening, earnestly pleads that he reconsider lest they alienate through such disobedience our King. This is following the classic intercessionary model but the fact that the chronicler feels the need to say that that Joanna, quote, "...neglected accepted practices," suggests that this was no ordinary act. This was not some sort of high court ceremony. She was adapting it in a more private setting to ensure her husband did not make an historical blunder. This sets her out as being a more than usually influential duchess. The calendar rolls of England, a rather dry listing of legal business in the kingdom, shows that Joanna continued this practice at Queen. Here are a few of the entries. In February 1403, quote, Pardon at the supplication of the king's consort, the queen, to John Westminster Bailey, son of Roger Bailey of Alton, for all felonies committed by him except treason, murder and rape. In March of the same year, quote, Pardon at the supplication of the king's consort to Henry a s convicted before the justices appointed to deliver the gaol of Cambridge of being a counterfeiter of coinage of the execution of judgment against him. And in December 1404, quote, "...pardon at the supplication of the king's consort, the queen, to the king's kinswoman, Maud de Vere, Countess of Oxford, for all treasons, felonies, rebellions, misprisons, negligences and trespasses committed by her and grant that she may have restitution of all her goods, lands, fees and avowsons from the morrow of Michaelmas last." When you add this to the example of those Breton sailors and some other less well-documented examples that turn up in the sources, we can paint a picture of a queen that was not afraid to use the limited powers at her disposal when she felt it necessary. This may not have changed the view that many English had of her as a massively unnecessary financial drain, but it does show that she was a woman of some substance. Aside from all of this, her Breton connections did lay the groundwork for two Anglo-Breton treaties and kept the peace with England at a time when England could ill afford another war on the continent. She is also credited with keeping England out of the Armagnac-Burgundian Civil War, a feud between two rival houses for who should control France while her king was indisposed. Henry apparently was agitating to get involved so as to gain the favour of the victor, but Joanna sagely persuaded him to keep out of that crap first. So, her foreign connections were not entirely useless to England, merely a huge financial burden. But of course, that was only one of the primary duties of queenship. The other, and usually more important, was to produce children. Henry and Joanna's marriage was childless, but in many ways that is not that surprising. Joanna had already been pregnant on multiple occasions, and Henry had heirs enough and daughters aplenty. plenty. She was still very much of childbearing age and there is nothing in the sources that I have seen to suggest that they were abstinent. All we know is that their union was childless. If you'll forgive me a little speculation though, I do believe that there was a conscious decision on the royal couple's part not to have further children. I've already mentioned that Henry had sufficient heirs and if you look back at English history you will see that there is definitely such a thing as having too many sons. One need only look at the reign of Henry II to see that need to find lands, titles and riches for each of them, and the more of them you have, the harder it is to do. Furthermore, let's not forget that Joanna's mother died in childbirth, and even at a time where life was cheaper than it is today, that must have deeply affected her. It was needless to have more children, so why take the risk? In terms of her existing children, she kept up good relations with them. Of course her two daughters had come over with her, and she did her motherly duty of helping to arrange for them to get married. Margaret married a local Breton lord called Alan of Rohan, and Blanche got a somewhat more prestigious one to John of Armagnac, which was pushed through by her son as Brittany aligned with the Armagnac faction in their conflict against the Burgundians. She never saw her eldest son John again as she never did return to Brittany, but her younger sons Arthur and Giles did come to visit her in England. As far as being a stepmother is concerned to Henry's children, it seems that she did a decent job, though we really don't have much information. They didn't really need another mother, and she already had kids enough to care about. The reign of Henry IV, like I said earlier, was characterised by frequent intrigue and revolt, but he was also not a very well man for the latter part of his reign. He suffered from a pretty debilitating skin condition from around 1408 onwards. They may well have been a form of leprosy, but also suffered from other ailments throughout his life. For a man who had always liked to throw his weight around, it must have been terrible to waste away like that, once he had achieved his dream of becoming king. On the 20th of March 1413, Henry died at Westminster Palace. Eschewing the traditional burial place for kings of England at Westminster Abbey, Henry instead chose to be buried at Canterbury Cathedral, as he had always had a personal and spiritual affinity for St Thomas Becket. He was buried in a magnificent tomb very close to that of Becket, and it was decorated with images of the saint's martyrdom. Atop the tomb lies an effigy of the king and of Joanna too as a good few years later she would join her husband. It was also she that arranged and paid for the tomb, the last act of devotion in a marriage that seems to have been at least personally successful if not financially or diplomatically. We'll leave it off there for this week. Next time, we will look at Joanna's time as Dowager Queen during the reigns of her stepson and step-grandson, where she would be the first Queen of England to be accused of treason on the basis of, wait for it, witchcraft.